and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. The founders we've had on the show have collectively raised over a billion dollars in venture capital. I've heard which investors they enjoy working with, which are most helpful, which are not so helpful. But the consistent piece of feedback I've heard is the desire for a more diverse cap table and a more operator-centric focus. It's why I was so excited to chat with Malin Yen, founder and general partner of Operator Collective this week. Operator Collective was founded on the belief that venture capital concentrated amongst a homogenous group doesn't represent where the tech industry is now or where it's going. Operator Collective has created a new access point for operators from diverse backgrounds. The $50 million fund has over 100 LPs, of which 90% are women and 40% are people of color. And the LP base is filled with many of the best operators in the world, having representation from the C-suites of tech's fastest growing businesses. Companies like Stripe, Zoom, PagerDuty, TaskRabbit, Salesforce, and more. It was so fun to chat with Malin. She truly opened my eyes with her thoughtfulness. Around the 50 minute mark after we ended the official podcast, Malin and I continued the conversation for a few hours. Neither of us knew it was recorded, but I'm so glad it was, and we decided to share excerpts from the conversation to continue to add perspective on how we can drive for a more inclusive tech industry. This was one of my favorite episodes I've done to date. Welcome, Malin. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you know, Malin, really excited to have you on the show today to talk about a lot of different topics. You can talk about the future of investing, diversity and inclusion and, and finish out with some paradigm shifts really in the era of COVID. But before we jump in, you know, tell us a little bit more about your background and how it led you to founding Operator Collective. So I actually started out my career as an intellectual property attorney, which is highly unusual for um, someone who's now a full-time investor. So while I was at Cisco as the VP of Worldwide IP, saw that there was an industry problem that needed to be addressed. And we ended up um, launching a company that we took from zero to 100 million in public in less than three years. And even though it was a venture-backed company, um, I was such an outsider to venture, I didn't realize that there was anything unusual about that. Also in parallel, helped start and, um, and scale up something called Saster, which is the largest uh, enterprise, uh, largest community and gathering place for enterprise and B2B software. So as a result of these things, I started to spend more and more time with founders um, in the venture world and recognized a few things, which is that founders were coming to me because one, I had worked in the enterprise and knew how to navigate the enterprise, and two, had built and scaled up a recurring revenue business that sold to the enterprise and had actually um, had experience scaling and how do you expand beyond the founding team. So as a result of that, I stepped back and said, hmm, the VCs and founders spend a lot of time with each other, and the VCs and founders is what a lot of the VC world revolves around, um, with good reason, because if there were no VCs and founders, there would be no funded startups. But what was missing, um, it was clear to me what was missing were the operators. Because once you get to initial traction, after you, your initial funding, after you get start to get that idea together, you need to hire people, right? You need to hire people who are going to be your team, who are going to build and scale up the company. And... Um, and because you're not going to hire other VC, you're not going to hire VCs, and you're not going to hire other founders. You need to hire at some some point people who have actually done this before, and those are operators in the enterprise. But what I also recognized and and observed was that our networks don't really intersect. So even me, when I was an operator in the enterprise who had helped build and scale up a venture-backed company that went public, my network didn't really overlap that much with the VCs and founders who are always going to events to to each other, tweeting to each other, honoring each other on lists. And so I thought, hey, there's a gap in the venture world. 
And if we could bring in operators in an efficient way to make it accessible, then, then that would help the founders, that would help the VCs, and frankly, that would help the operators as well, because the operators were interested in, in engaging in venture, but there's just not an efficient, easy way for them to do so. And then, um, because you tend to know people like you, and I was an operator, was um, I knew a lot of operators who had built and scaled up businesses and who were women and people of color. And so that's how Operator Collective came to be, is could we find an efficient way to bring into the venture world a large number of operators who had built and scaled up these successful companies or ran enterprises, and also at the same time, because um, you know this is the part that kind of feeds my soul, which is this could be a way also of naturally diversifying the venture community because the fact that I knew a lot of operators who were women and people of color. So Operator Collective is, it's a really inter interesting intersection, right? It's an intersection of two key concepts that you just framed out. So on the one hand side, you have operators, but on the other side, you have diversity, right? In the form of yeah. women and people of color. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you've said before that's really resonated with me is you've been working on this idea, you know, in some form or just for, for about 20 years, right? Every job, every conference, every investor interaction you've had has played a role in contributing to this thesis. So talk a little bit more about the observation that led you to the need, you know, not just for, you know, more operators in venture or, or you know, more diversity in venture, but really the, the intersection between operators and diversity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is, um, you know, officially I've been working on this probably, you know, for the last year and a half, but it's absolutely true that it's been 20 years, 20 years of observations, 20 years of learnings, 20 years of, um, of understanding what were the causes that were keeping people separate. Because at the end of the day, what I wanted to do with Operator Collective is not just bring a bunch of operating talent, super hyper-talented operating um, folks into the venture world, but also those who came from backgrounds that wouldn't necessarily be able to access the venture world otherwise. And so some of the things I saw from, from the jobs that I've had, right? So I've always been in um, male-dominated industries. When I was an intellectual property attorney, um, it's, a, it's a very male-dominated um, profession because you need to typically have a venture, um, uh, I'm sorry, you typically need to have a technical degree and then work your way up the law platform. And then once people do that, they often don't leave. And so, so from there, um, where I was the... Um, when I was promoted actually to head of IP at Cisco, it was such a rare occurrence that it was a front page story in legal press about the fact that I was appointed and there were only six other of us. So from that very first um, uh, major promotion that I had, realized that there were very few of us out there in tech companies who were heads of IP and actually started my first community, which is called CHIPS, which has become 5,000 people in 20 chapters around the world. Um, the, the, the second thing was conferences, right? We have all heard about um, mantles, right? And for a long time, um, and I think that most, I, I would say that most people are actually fairly aware now of having diversity on panels. So you don't see as many of them as you have in the past. But um, I'm glad to see that, um, that, that that change has happened. But even with Saster, right? The first, the first the first conference at Saster, um, Jason, who's the is the 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 brains and the and the founder behind Saster, and he he what he did when he started the first Saster um, conference was he invited all his friends, his friends who were the CEOs of these SaaS companies, and of course they're great speakers, they're right? they've done lots of amazing things, but they also happen to be mostly male, and so that first Saster conference was actually ninety five percent. 
male speakers and 5% women. And in fact, the, the, the one woman who was speaking actually is now my partner at Operator Collective, now Leila Seca. So um, it all comes full circle. And so, and he was horrified, right? And a lot of people wonder whether or not the diversity in the Saster speaker community comes all from me. It's not. It actually comes from Jason. It was driven by Jason. Um, and obviously, I've, I've vigorously supported it. But, but after he realized that, he said, we can't do this anymore. And he actually set real number goals. So, so from there. And then on investing, um, as I started to angel invest, and I, only, I predominantly only invest in the enterprise. And an enterprise is even more... Um, dominated by, you know, a certain homogenous dominant group than, than in consumer and otherwise. And so what I recognized as I started to invest that I was oftentimes the only woman um, on the cap table. And, and in fact, I would ask the founders, what I was like, who else is investing? And they would go through the list and I would say, you know, don't take this the wrong way, but I am going to ask you this question, which is, am I the only woman that's investing in your company? And the response was, Oh my God, you are right, and 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 then it was just horror. The fact that yes, they are an embarrassment, and then what I like is that a very real dialogue, which is which is I I, I don't know any of the women, right? Can you help me? I I don't want this to be what my investor base looked like. So as a result of all this, had been studying for a long time is like most people are not trying to exclude the women or people of color. Um, it's that our networks don't typically naturally intersect. And we had to make it easy for these networks to naturally intersect and for people to work together. And so as a result of doing that, we needed to make it accessible for people like me when I was a woman operator in the enterprise to be able to participate. Because if we just try and say, okay, women and people of color who are operators who aren't part of the venture ecosystem, just come in and start angel investing or come in and start meeting all these people, the system is not accessible. It's the forces are keeping everyone separate. And so that's at a fundamental level. We had to when we looked at building Operator Collective, it was it was it is a venture fund. Right. Um, but we rebuilt it in a way that makes it accessible to all parts, including um, busy women operators. Well, and your LP base is really interesting. Right, especially for, for from a construction perspective for a venture fund. And it, it fits into the core you know, ethos of Operator Collective. But you know, for the folks listening that, that might not know about the LP base, it's, it's over 100 folks. Uh, it's very unique. It's obviously very operator heavy. And it's got, you know, founder and C-suite representation from, you know, really many of the values, right? Gusto, Tough Rabbit, Stripe, Zoom, PagerDuty, et cetera. Uh, but one of the things that um, I found, you know, so compelling about it is it's over 90% women, right? And, and I believe 40% people of color. So talk a little bit more about, you know, this specific collection of individuals uh, and how you were able to get this group to come together. Yeah, absolutely. So we have, so it's a, it's a $50 million venture fund, which is a pretty unusual, um, to have that size of a venture fund for someone who, um, uh, for a first time fund for a first time GP like I am. And so the investor base is, um, primarily in terms of numbers, operator LPs, people who are operators and founders. And, and then also we have institutional investors as well, like universities and foundations, which is also highly unusual for a first-time fund and a first-time GP. So of our operators, um, we, as I mentioned earlier, we had to make it accessible because we have some of the busiest people in the world who are, who are participating in this fund. Um, and so we, we had to make it accessible from a time perspective and we had to make it accessible from a dollar's perspective. Um, because the way a typical venture fund works is uh, a typical, uh, you know, more established venture fund works is that you have a handful of 
limited partner investors. And those tend to be, you know, family offices, some universities, endowments, some high net worth individuals. And usually like there's a small handful of, you know, portfolio CEOs who get asked um, whether or not they want to put money into the fund. And so I knew what I wanted to do with this fund was to bring in those operators. Maybe they weren't the founders, right? And so they don't have the liquidity um, and the accessibility of the founders, but I know that they were the ones who were building and scaling up these companies. So they had that background. And frankly, because we only invest in the enterprise, um, these were also the people who are the potential customers and users. So this is who I wanted to get to. But if we had just set this up the way a typical venture fund is set up, there's no way they could have afforded to participate. And so we created a sliding scale. Um, so when you, um, a sliding scale, depending on um, how they've been compensated in the past, um, what their position was, um, the um, uh, how, um, how underrepresented their background was. And so that allowed it to be accessible to a large number of people who never could have been able to put in, you know, a million dollars or more the way that some of these other uh, venture funds are set up. And again, uh, it's nothing against those other venture funds. It's just a different model. My model was, and my passion is, how can we bring these highly, highly talented, uh, mostly women, and people of color into the venture ecosystem in a way that was accessible. So that was the one piece. Or that was one piece of it, which was which was the dollars. The second piece, which was the time. Um, women are taught to be perfect. Or we're conditioned to be perfect in everything. Perfect at work. Perfect at our homes. Perfect parents. I mean, perfect parents. Perfect um, friends, etc. And so, lots of times, um, if we don't feel like we can do something perfectly or um, carry through with what we're agreeing to do, we just won't do it. Because I know me, because I was a busy operator in the enterprise with small kids. And most of our operators, 90% of them are women, and a large percentage of them are also um, um, have small kids at home. And so as a result of this, we put, um, we made it accessible so that there was no minimum time commitment. What we said was, you know what, you know, Claire, you're not going to be the only COO that's, um, that's one of the, um, LPs in the fund that we're going to tap on for diligence and for other things. There's actually, there's actually like 12 of you. And so if you're busy, don't worry about it, right? We've got other people. And so there was no minimum time commitment, which freed people up to say, okay, you know what? I can participate because I'm not letting anyone down. And, and if I'm busy, I know that someone else is going to be able to do it. And so as a result of saying there's no minimum time commitment, um, these people, men and women actually tend to spend a lot of time with us because they also know that if they have to step out, uh, Michelle Zatlin, for instance, she's a COO and co-founder of Cloudflare. Um, she's incredibly active, but not when she was taking her company public. And in fact, she shouldn't be active because she needs to focus on that, which should be her number one um, you know, professional priority at the time. And so that's what we did, which is you have to change the system. If you can't make the, you can't just bring this many people in and say, hey, you just need to put in, you know, X number of dollars. And by the way, we need this amount of time from you and expect that you're going to be able to get, um, um, these busy operators to be able to participate. And so what we had to do was create a system and create a model that made it accessible, to made it comfortable for them. I think the community aspect of, of building that new system is, is so integral. And I, I want to dive into that a bit more because, you know, you've built a, a number of, of, of communities and you've alluded to some of them, you know, Saster, Chips, et cetera. But before we dive into kind of the community side, I'm, I'm curious, how did the differentiated approach you know, in addition to the differentiated thesis, right? But how did the differentiated approach play out when raising the fund? So obviously, you know, many of the LPs are operators themselves, but you did, you know, raise from, you know, institutional 
uh, LPs as well. Um, and, and you've said, you know, before that you were able to raise the fund. You know, I, I found this really interesting precisely because you didn't check the boxes, you know, but filled the gaps instead. So talk a little bit more about the process when actually raising the fund and, and what, you know, what specifically you mean by this idea of not checking the boxes, but filling the gaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great question. And it's, 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 it's actually fun to talk about because, because when I went to go start this fund, like a lot of people were wildly supportive, but they were also very, um, they were very realistic in terms of their view of what was possible because um, the way I, this is my fourth entity that I've started, my fourth organization um, launched a lot of products. And so I'm obsessive about talking to people. I've probably talked to thousands of people before I launched something. And so what I heard was a lot of things, which is, look, you know what, you should raise a fund. You should stick with just some friends and family. Maybe you'll raise a five to $10 million fund. You don't have enough of a track record to bring in outside investors. Focus on that. Do that for a few years, build up a bigger track record. And then, um, and then maybe you can raise a larger fund. Um, another thing that I heard was you should bring someone in who has traditional venture experience, someone who has been a VC for, for 20 years. And so, and, 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 and finally, um, you know, they said, don't even bother with institutional investors because they're never going to invest in a fund that's this small with a first time manager. And so you might say that, Hey, I just ignored all that. Right. And just said, Hey, I'm just going to do this anyway. And I'm going to go get institutional investors, but I actually didn't ignore it. Right. What I did was I listened and I listened to why, why were they saying that? Because if they were saying that they weren't saying that to be mean, they weren't saying that to not be encouraging. It was the reality. Um, that is the status quo. It is a lot harder. And so what I realized was when I, when I was doing this is that I needed to be able to counter all of those arguments to say, actually, because I am none of those things, it's actually a stronger fund and this is how we're building it. And so, and so that's, that's what we did, which is, which was, we looked at the fact that, okay, I didn't have a 20 year track record as a VC. In fact, I'd never been a GP before. Um, um, and, uh, and how, how was I going to get deal flow? How we're going to, how are we going to, uh, how are we going to, how are we going to do this? And so what, what I did is I knew that I couldn't uh, with all of those things. And the fact is that those people weren't wrong. If I raised a traditional venture fund that looked like everyone else, frankly, I wouldn't have invested in the fund. Um, and frankly, it actually wouldn't be interesting to me because I actually had no desire to be a traditional VC. I'm a builder. I love building. I love working with teams. I love building communities. And so, so what I did was I took the fact that I knew they were going to say those things. So here's how I'm going to counter all those things. And so one is, yeah, um, I haven't been a 20 year VC before. Um, and so what did I do? I actually brought in as two of our investment committee advisors, two of the best enterprise investors in the world, um, Magdalena Yassil and Dan Scheinman. Magdalena was the very first um, investor in Salesforce. She funded Salesforce when nobody else would. Um, put in 500K, and if you see her on the S1, she owns like, you know, you know 2% of the company. And the other one was Dan Scheinman, who was the very first investor in Zoom, who, um, you know, obviously is doing very well these days, and also the first outside check into a company called Arista. So both are longtime enterprise um, operators, um, founders, as well as investors. And the thing is, is like, I don't know. I don't think that I know everything. So it actually made the fund stronger that, that, Hey, I need to counter the fact that it's just me and I don't have this huge long track record. So I'm going to bring in two of the most amazing, um, investors and human beings, frankly, that I know. And I was fortunate that I've, I've known them for a while as well. And so that as a result made the fund stronger. 
Um, and the other thing that I heard was, how are you going to manage all these LPs? You can't take someone for $10,000. Um, you're, you're never going to be able to manage that. But the thing is, is that was what our strength was, which is the fact that we had redundancy. We, that allowed more people who were busy COOs to be able to participate. So instead of having, like I said, one COO, we had 12 of them. And so that actually made it um, easier to build because then we got more and more um, busy people who were willing to participate because one, they supported it. And two, they didn't feel like they were going to be um, not able to keep up with the, um, with the, with the, um, with any expectations. And so, and then third, because, and this is, goes back to the point about every job, everything that I've had is I'm a builder of communities. This is my fourth um, company and every single company I've done has had a um, strong community as a part of it. And so I know how to build communities. I enjoy building communities. I love building communities. I get a lot of strength from communities and I think it makes businesses stronger. Let's, let's talk about the community aspect. Cause I think that's, um, you know, the, the, the idea around how Operator Collective is so community-centric, right, is I think in, in its core in the differentiation of the model itself. So before diving into a couple of questions here on, on building communities, let's just start with the, a bit more about Mal and your philosophy on community, right? So you mentioned it, you've built four you know, successful communities and in organizations you've had a hand in building. Talk a little bit more about you know, the, the philosophy behind community and why that's so important. Uh, yeah, so with with building communities and all the communities that I've built, they've all started with, with you have to be, there has to be a common enough tie, right? If you tr started to start, if you try to start too broadly, it just doesn't work. There's not enough of a tie-in. And so what I've always done is I've always been, and I've always felt like an outsider all of my life, right? And if you look at the areas that I focused in, uh, I don't intentionally pick, you know, boring, unsexy industries. It's just what I gravitate toward, right? My first community was built around women in patent law, right? Um, not, not something that's really been a lot of focus. Um, and then from there, it ended up expanding to women in law, tech, and policy and the intersection of that. And so, um, you know, um, the, 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 the venture back company that, you know, that I helped start that, that one was about, um, it's broader than women in patent law. It was about intellectual property, right? We made rock stars and we made, we made intellectual property interesting. Um, Saster, right? In the early days of Saster, it was about enterprise SaaS, uh, which now is really cool, I think. <laughs> but back then was like, SaaS? What was that? And so with communities, um, it's good to start with the groups that um, aren't already um, a major focus. And, and also focusing on what you know and who your people are. And then, and then obsessing about like, how do you make people feel comfortable? How do you make people want to come to events? How do you make people feel like they belong to something? And so, um, and so, you know, it's a little bit tougher these days because we can't have in-person events. Um, but I think all of us are, are adapting and feeling the need even more to connect with people that are like us, um, people who are not like us too, but at a, um, at a fundamental level also about the people who, um, who are part of these various communities. And, and talk a little bit more about kind of the sequential importance of the way you think about community. And, and what I mean by that is I think there's an interesting flywheel effect that takes place when you think about uh, community inside out and, and building from community within your core, right? So the operator collective, collective model, even though a venture fund, is fundamentally different than a fund that, you know, after the fact with a portfolio of companies, so on and so forth, looks to build community, right? So talk a little bit more about kind of the thought process of building community 
building community from within and then you know pushing out versus versus the after the fact you know motion that I think a lot more of the traditional venture firms take. Yeah, in fact, that's an that's a that's a great observation because one of the universities that ended up investing, I actually asked him why. I said, "Why are you investing?" Because I actually I had written him off because I said because this university was already over allocated in venture had already invested in a number of VC funds in the Bay Area, um, which also in, um, invest in the enterprise area. So I thought there was no way they were going to invest. Um, and so I asked him, I said, why, why did you invest? You know, from, from all objective, you know, check the boxes, you, you just never should have. And what he said was, every venture fund claims to, that they're going to form this fund and then they're going to build this great community around it you're the only one who's actually built the community first. And so, um, so it's an interesting observation that, um, that, that is tough, that, that, um, that a lot of people try to do the flip side because communities are hard. Yeah. And so that, that's, that's actually exactly the, the, the push I wanted to get to, right. Which is how is this model, this model is different. I think the value of the community is different, you know, from the perspective of you built kind of inside out versus outside in. So talk a little bit more about kind of that sequential yeah. importance, right? Why start with community? And that's that I see that um, I see that same philosophy in Saster very yeah. candidly, right? So Saster fund, a lot of these things kind of came after the fact, but the focus was on building community first and then having the other tangential things, um, you know, kick off afterwards. Yeah. So so what I started with 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 Operator Collective um, Operator Collective actually started as just a gathering that I had with other women COOs in tech because we're so busy. Um, we're so busy. And you would think that there are not that many women COOs in tech. Um, and in fact, there aren't even that many COOs in tech, right? And so you would think that we all know each other. And we didn't all know each other. And in fact, because I was a newer COO to tech, I had assumed all the others knew each other, but it turned out they didn't. So we actually got together um, for lunch and we were trying to figure out how do we, how do we, um, is there something that we can be doing together? And so that kind of got me thinking, which is there's actually not a community here. We need to build a community around this and um, got to know them as a result of this. And in fact, most of the, um, actually all of the women who ended up coming uh, to that first lunch are now LPs in the fund. And so you start with the people who are like you and we all had a common desire to be able to spend time together, to get to know each other, to share ideas, to help each other because we're all dealing with the same issues but we didn't have time to do so. And so one, we had the desire, two, we were sharing common issues and common problems. And then three, the thing that you have to do when you're building community is you have to make it accessible to the community. So most of us, we all happen to be women in that, and all of us actually have, have you know, kids at home. And so we would meet not for drinks at night when, other, when all of us are trying to get home because we're all traveling so much and we can barely see our kids, and not early before drop-off. And so we met during lunch. And so we did the same thing when, for instance, we had Operator Summit. Um, we planned it in about four weeks, so we knew that people didn't have a lot of time to, to rearrange things or their schedules. And so we actually started it at 10 and we ended it at four. Um, and, and, and to make people comfortable because we all get invited to a lot of things is we said, Hey, Erica, um, thanks for coming. Could you invite three or four of your friends to, to come? Because, mm -hmm. you know, things that people that, and so it was a personalized invitation where it made it safe to go, right? Because think of how busy you are and think about if you are, you know, um, a busy operator in the enterprise. We're conditioned to do everything perfectly. We're trying to get home to the kids. We're trying to do, you know, this and that. How can you possibly fit in? But if a friend of yours came to you and said, this is really great. I think you should be there. Um, 
then 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 you might actually consider it and because we put it at family friendly times it also made it easier and then the third thing that we did is we knew that we wanted to get a lot of operators and not just the founders to the summit that we put together and ultimately our community and so um we uh but also we're a startup so we had no budget we hadn't even launched the fund yet publicly and so what we did was we ended up um we had a lot of people who were willing to help us. And so one of those was a VC fund. And he said, how can we help? We love what you're doing. Um, you're building this great community that, that we don't know how to build. I said, I need money. <laughs> I said, can you give me, um, you know, and he gave me a substantial check so that I can actually give tickets away to the people that I know want to come but don't have the money to come. And so there were things that we we did, but there were also things that other people did to support this to enable. So we ended up giving away um, probably two thirds of the tickets. And in fact, some, some, some underrepresented groups who came who had actually paid for tickets, we went back and gave them their money back and said, you know what, this is now being sponsored um, by this firm. And, um, and so we know that every, every dollar can't, so we're actually going to refund it to you. And so as a result of that, this was a, this was, um, it was operator summit. We, you know, we planned it in four weeks. It was not a women or people of color summit. We had really phenomenal speakers that came out of our, our community. Um, but, um, uh, but the, the attendees ended up being, um, uh, 80% women and 50% people of color at this um, conference that was a tech conference that was not um, directly, uh, you know, was not billed as a women or people of color conference. And so it's a lesson in like, you just, people want to come, people want to be included, but you have to make it comfortable and you have to make it accessible. And then on the flip side too, is we had incredible support from the speakers. The speakers were the COO of Stripe, the CEO of of Zoom was interviewing the CEO of PagerDuty. We had um, we had really, we had, you know, the CEO of TaskRabbit, um, Stacey Brown-Philpott. We had really incredible folks like that. And every single one that we asked to speak said yes. Right. And so, um, so as a result, I think, um, of, of this, we were able to build this community that people cared about. They knew that um, we were all focused on trying to do the right thing, which is helping to build phenomenal companies in the enterprise and make it accessible to a diverse group of operators. And so as a result of that, um, people were willing to spend their time. How, how has it been building community in this type of environment, right? Obviously, and you were alluding to it a little bit earlier, Melinda, but obviously, you know, many of the things like in-person events, et cetera, um, you know, to build camaraderie, et cetera. And, and there's some good, there's some good research on, the challenges of, of you know, building um, core intricate relationships, you know, remotely versus in person, et cetera. You know, the flip side also, though, is people are looking for yearning and belonging, you know, in a community even more so in current state. Has, has what we're going through right now, has it changed the way you think about community or it's more so just been, you know, an adaptation of, of tactics to continue to build the community? You know, I wish I had the answer, right, on, on how do you, you know, what's the answer to building community and fostering togetherness in this in this world that we have today, both not only with um, with the sheltering in place, but also the tensions, frankly, the racial tensions that are going on right now, um, and the um, but but I don't. But I can offer sort of a few thoughts, um, which are um, which are people are craving right connection more than ever. I think that people are um, are wanting to find ways to connect. But we all have, you know, we're all on video conferencing all day, right? It's tough. And so, so a lot of, um, 
you know, and I think also at the beginning it was, hey, let's do Zoom happy hours. And look, I love Zoom um, and I'm on it all the time, but it, we all know it's not quite the same thing as, as actually being there. And so, um, and so we do a lot of, um, frankly, we do a lot of, um, you know, it's, it's not possible with everyone, but we do a lot of, a lot of emails, texts, a lot of personalized check-ins. Um, we intentionally actually move things to the phone. Um, we've done um, webinars um, and challenge series um, where we're talking about the issues that matter to the people right now and help them help them with specific solutions, and um, and really just trying to keep connected that way. Um, like I said, I wish I had like a, a great answer for you in terms of this is how you're going to build community today. But I think we're all trying to figure it out right now. And um, both personally and and you know professionally is how do you stay interconnected in a way that um, when when the past ways of doing it aren't possible. No, I, I appreciate the humility and, and the honesty, candidly. Um, and and I think your your insights on how to build community, especially you know given the the successful community built, it's a, it's an, it's a really important perspective um, you know, to hear on this on this topic. I, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about quite a bit, um, that I'm also interested to get your perspective on Malin is, you know, we're, we're in the midst of a significant underlying societal shift with COVID. And, and you mentioned, you know, we're, we're at a point in our country, you know, also where, you know, racial tensions are, are at their highest. Um, I'm, I'm curious on how you've been thinking about, you know, just the impact of COVID in general on diversity inclusion. It's something that I've thought a lot about, you know, on one hand, it certainly unlocks more opportunity. There's no question, you know, we're globalizing the world, we're increasing, you know, what I like to call, you know, opportunity liquidity. On the other hand, I, I think it could actually make diversity significantly harder. Um, you know, people are going to rely, you know, on signals and networks, you know, at least in the short term, right, in times adjustment. Um, I think it's in nature to rely, you know, more on basic building blocks and, and not really, you know, uncover or search for ground truths. Um, in, in times of limitation or scarcity. How are you thinking? It's a, it's a very broad question, right? And so I'll allow, allow you to kind of focus it in, in the way you think is appropriate, but how do you think about diversity and inclusion, you know, in this time frame that we're going through? Yeah, I think that there is a real risk and perhaps we're seeing a little bit of it as um, already, right? There is a real risk that that it gets pushed aside because there are so many other competing interests right now. The thought... Um, of, you know, just fundamental survival, I think, um, that there is real risk, and, and we're seeing a little bit of that. Um, and what you mentioned about people just falling into their patterns, right? If I can't meet someone in person, um, you know what, this is someone that I, this looks like someone that I funded five times over, and they've been successful. I worry about that. And we do see, I am seeing valuations still um, that are still high for the the pattern recognition of the ones that look like the people that have been funded before who have been successful, some really outsized valuations still for those, and then others, it's it's incredibly difficult, um, and so, um, so you know, on this too, I wish I had a great answer, but I think that the first part is awareness, awareness that um, I think you stated it well, which is awareness that this is happening, and that if we don't make real efforts to not backtrack on the progress that we've made, we are going to slip back even further. People are gonna get more entrenched in their little comfortable cocoons, right? And not reach out to the groups who are not like them. And so um, one of the things with with building community and how we did Operator Collective, when I said you need to, um, you start with the people who are like you, um, but you only start there. What we did with Operator Collective is I didn't want a community full of, frankly, white and Asian women. 
right? Um, and and so what we did was, but what I wanted was, I wanted to build a community of people who wanted to act, who were operators, who wanted to access the venture world, but it wasn't readily accessible to them. And so for instance, one of the very early people that I reached out to and was fortunate that she signed up to help, which was great, is Stacey Brown Philpot. Um, she is the CEO of TaskRabbit, one of the very few um, African-American women tech CEOs. And I had a very candid conversation when I met with her. And I said, she says, how can I help you? I love what you're doing. I said, Stacy, you have a broader African-American network than I do. Um, I have broader Asian network than you do. I said, can you help me make sure that we don't just substitute, um, you know, the white male model with now a fund that's full of rich white and Asian women? And so we were very deliberate in doing that. So that's one thing that I want to make sure that's clear is it's not just build a community just with the people like you, but also being deliberate about people who maybe are not like you, but share a common bond. And so, and so, um, so the awareness of the fact that if we don't, <clears throat> if we're not deliberate, it's even easier to fall into our old patterns and we are going to slip further back. And so taking the calls, um, um, looking at, looking at models or looking at companies that maybe don't look like the typical model that's been funded in the past, because certainly I've been the beneficiary. If people wanted to fund the typical venture model, the typical venture fund, they operator collective would not exist in the way that it exists now. It probably would be the five to $10 million fund, but we had people who had positions of power, right? Who ran $8 billion foundations who said, hey, this doesn't look like anything else. You don't look like anyone else who's ever done this, but we see that as an advantage. And so we're gonna fund you and we're gonna be the first institutional investor to step up. So I hope that we can see more leadership like that. I wish I had a bigger fund so that we could, we could have more influence, but there's a lot of people I think who share the desire to not slip back even further than where we were before. Um, and definitely awareness and deliberation is gonna be key. Yeah, I, I really like that framing, Mel, and it, it reminds me candidly of a conversation I, I just had, um, you know, with a founder who's, who's a great friend. I, I deeply admire a woman named Allison Robinson of the, of the Mom Project, and Allison's raised, you know, over twenty million dollars from from folks like Initialized Capital, um, and and she and I were talking quite at length about how integral it's been, you know, both for her business being funded candidly. Uh, but then also in selling the enterprise to work with partners that really get it and 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 the partners you know that get it being in decision making seats and and not dissimilar actually to you know your partner Layla's role in working you know with Mark Beanyoff and the Salesforce team to drive equal pay um, beyond awareness right and I, I agree that that's the first step. What what have you found as a consistent characteristic? you know, in these champions of change, whether it's inside, you know, from the enterprise itself or, or you know, uh, attacking the problem outside in. Yeah, so, so it's, it's awareness and then it's being deliberate, right, with your actions. And then third, when you're someone who's trying to drive change, you have to make it easy for those to help you. Right, so you have to tell them what you need. Because what I found is, frankly, even when I was putting together Operator Collective, what I saw, one of the reasons why I did this, and this is one of the reasons why it's not 100% women, right? We And why we're investing in founders from all backgrounds, is that I knew there were a lot of, frankly, white males who wanted to help. But what are they gonna do, show up at our women's dinners, right? And so what we did was we said, here's how you can help us. And you know what, they do. 
right? And, and in fact, um, you know, someone asked me um, recently, hey, the fact that you are 50% women founders in your enterprise portfolio, which is unheard of, right? Because enterprise is very dominated by men. Um, is that because you get more women founders through all of your women LPs? And I said, well, we get a lot of you know, women referrals to women founders through our women LPs, but we get just as many from our males, you know, from our men. And so, and frankly, we get, you know, referrals of both genders and all genders from them. And so lots of times for um, the people who are trying to drive change, but perhaps they're not in that underrepresented group, they don't really know, like, how am I going to do this? And we, we do live in a very, you know, um, you have to be very careful about what you say, especially when you're in the privileged group, right? And I, I count myself in a very privileged group. And so, but, um, but white males in particular, I think are, are also, you know, need to be very careful about, about what they say. But, they, but I found that a lot of them really want to help. And so what we did is we made it easy for them to help, which is um, when Layla, for instance, went to Mark Benioff to say, hey, um, you're paying the men more than you're paying the women. We need to do something about this. He didn't, she didn't just go there and say, now go fix it, right? She actually went there with data, she went there with studies, and she went there with a plan. And it's the same thing with, with Operator Collective, which is, which is I didn't just go, hey, you need to fund this because, uh, because there aren't enough operators and there weren't enough operators from diverse backgrounds, so you should just fund this. Built this based on data, based on studies, based on a new business model to say, and here's how we're going to affect change, and this is the part that I need from you. It's, it's, it's still relatively early. In, in early innings at Operator Collective, and we, you know, very early innings at Operator Collective, uh, and we, we talked about it a little bit earlier, uh, you know, from the perspective of raising the fund in terms of, you know, challenges, objections, et cetera, you know, that, that you heard. Um, you were, um, and I'll brag on your behalf, you were an oversubscribed fund, right? So you, you clearly had a lot of folks that, that were very interested, you know, not only in the mission, but, but candidly had the confidence in, in your ability to execute What's the biggest challenge and objection um, either you've heard outside in, right, that's made you pause or, or say, you know, this is, this is something fundamental as, as we tackle, you know, the mission statement we're going after or something, you know, inside out that you've thought of itself uh, that you look at and say, you know, this is a really big challenge. What, what's the biggest kind of challenge or, or pause you've had, you know, in, in running the fund so far? So we were fortunate that at the end it was oversubscribed, but I have to tell you in the early days, it's not like everyone was throwing money at me, right? <laughs> which is, oh, you want to do this? Let me give you $5 million. <laughs> right? um, I, I talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, it's true that the operator LPs um, that I spoke to, most of the ones that I spoke to signed on fairly immediately, but I also knew that as part of building this fund to get it to, to any scale that I wanted, the original goal of the fund was 30 million, but I had, my, my stretch goal was always 50 and we ended up raising um, 50. But to get those, uh, those other investors uh, was not easy, um, was not easy in the early days, um, but um, because you have to be obsessive about every single part of it and every single objection. And so um, one, of the, one of the things that I heard, but, but the one thing that we, we did do from, from day one was that even when I didn't have, you know, even $5 million or $10 million raised yet, we were very particular about who we would take money from. We didn't take money from people who we didn't think actually believed that this was a good business model. Um, and in fact, you might think that that's strange, right? But, but there were some people who said, I met with them. They're like, they didn't quite get why 
you know, beyond, you know, the fact that this, there is a diversity piece of this and where we believe we're really changing, helping to change the face of venture, that the diversity piece actually makes us a business, better business model. Not because, you know, diverse teams out innovate and out create homogenous teams, yes, but actually the fact that the mindset of the people involved, because they're not part of the dominant homogenous group, is different. And I'll explain that in a second. And so you're, even in the early days, um, there were a few people who wanted to put in like a million dollars. I mean, that was a lot of money. I mean, it's still a lot of money. And and when they would say like, you know, I don't really understand what you're doing, but at this point in my life, I just want to feel good about the investments and I don't really care about the return. And 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 I opted to turn that money down because I said, if you don't understand why what we're doing is such a good, is a really great business idea, then you really can't help us because you don't understand why this is compelling. And so I turned down people like that. And those people are not you know, bad people or mean people or people who aren't supportive. They just didn't quite understand what it is that we were doing. Because, and one of the, one of the pieces that I got was, um, um, one of the objections I got was, and this is what happens when you're in the dominant homogenous group and you're not in this underrepresented group has been, that has not had these opportunities accessible to them, is they would say, okay, so let me get this straight. So your model is that you have all these operators who you're going to ask to do diligence. You're going to ask them to meet and help your portfolio companies. You're going to help make introductions. And they would say, okay, how are you going to pay all these people? And because there's going to be a hundred of them. And I said, no, I'm not paying them. They're actually paying us because they're investing. And, and so they're like, wait, why are they going to help you if you don't pay them? And, and so, and I would explain to them the reason why is because one, most 70, 70% of our operator LPs had never invested in venture before. And when we asked them why they said, wasn't accessible, hadn't been asked, didn't know how to evaluate, um, um, you know, didn't have the time. And so, so what, when you build a model like this, what you, what they didn't quite understand was that these are not people who have you know millions and millions and millions of disposable um, you know of of dollars to spend on angel investing where they don't care what happens to it which is I'll sprinkle this around and see if something hits these are people who maybe can you know can spend $10,000 investing over the next few years um and that's really tough if you're trying to do it on your own but with us they can do this and so this is their one investment they're doing um, and I hope after results of this, we make them a lot of money and they can make lots more investments. But this is their one investment. And so they care about this. And and I am generalizing here as women and immigrants and people of color who, you know, of which we have a large, um, large percentage in this company, uh, in this, um, in this fund tend to like to get involved where they're putting in their money. It is not just about sprinkling it around and seeing where it lands. Uh, one of the things that was slightly surprising to me as part of this process is when I'd be doing diligence on a company that we were looking at investing in, and I'd be like, oh, I know so-and-so who's an investor. So I would go talk to so-and-so who's an investor, and I'd say, hey, what do you think of X company? And they'd be like, do I know that company? Um, I said, I believe you're an investor. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, if I were an investor, I'm not that active. <laughs> so it was, it was really interesting to me to know that there was actually a, a certain type of angel investor out there who sprinkled so many investments that they actually couldn't remember what they invested in. That's not the people who are involved in Operator Collective. I, um, uh, I, I can assure you that every operator um, and every LP in our fund is 
um, is acutely aware of every single investment that we've done. And so um, that's a little bit of an orthogonal point to what you were asking. <laughs> Maybe a big one. <laughs> the mindset the mindset is so different. And I, I actually want, I want you to talk a little bit about this kind of at, at length, because you've, you've talked about it before and, and you have an interesting perspective on it. Um, and I think folks that come from, you know, immigrant backgrounds or the children of immigrants, you know, as, as I am, yeah. as, as you are, um, you know, have a different kind of appreciation for this. Just just talk a little bit more about kind of that immigrant background, right? Un unpeel a little bit of the layer of what you were what you were speaking to, because I think the the mindset and the attitude part is so important, and it, not only in understanding kind of what drives this mentality and folks, right? But it it it, it very much so is, I think, a different uh, a different positional lens, you know, from which you develop your perspectives. Yeah, and so I used to um, I used to write quite a bit about, um, and I write from my voice, right? Just like you write and you speak from your voice because that's what you know. And my voice is daughter of immigrants. Um, always felt like an outsider. Always, um, you know, even when I was the the head of intellectual property at at Cisco, I was one of the few, you know chief IP counsels who actually didn't have a technical degree. So I've always been sort of feeling like an outsider and also someone who always is more comfortable like fading into the background as opposed to being front and center at anything. And so when I used to write about um, things like that or what it felt like um, or um, or from a position of being a woman or um, et cetera, what's interesting is, is I would get a lot of feedback from people like who were also introverts or who were immigrants or were engineers who weren't part of the sort of that dominated dominant alpha group, and and so um, that's the voice I speak from. But I think that it applies to lots of different groups, right? Whether it's an immigrant, whether it's an engineer, whether it's a um, whether it's a it's an introvert. And so I think what a lot of a lot of these things have in common, and certainly what I feel is that we don't feel like we're part of the in crowd, right? So we're always kind of a little bit on the outside, feel like we're, we're, we're looking in. Um, I actually think that that's an advantage these days. For a long time, I just wanted to be in the in crowd, right? And But now I'm like, I like the fact that I was never a part of the in crowd and, and maybe never will be, which is you spend a lot of time observing. You spend a lot of time um, trying to say, especially like being the daughter of immigrants, um, where my parents you know, still really don't speak English and the, the Western culture was very foreign to them. You know, you you observe like how people interact, how people intersect, how do they do things to to fit in, and so you I think you end up noticing a lot of things that you otherwise might not notice, you might take for granted, and as a result of that, um, I obsess about things like building a community, which is gosh, how can I build a community that people actually want to come to? I spend a lot of time watching people, like who are the people that people gravitate toward? How do they do that? And so. Um, and I, I think a lot of immigrants and, and people who are not part of the dominant group do spend a lot of time on the outside kind of looking in, and you can make some really great observations that way and then act accordingly. Yeah, I think the, the observation, the, there's, there's a couple of threads there uh, that we've been talking about in the conversation, right? I think the, the outside in mindset, the observational you know, approach um, and then clear and, and strong focus on community is actually a, a it's a pretty it's a pretty powerful trifecta. So I, I really like the way you frame that. Um, as as we round out the conversation, Melon, you know, a final final thought, um, a final topic that I want to get your thought on is one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately is, you know, how will the world change coming out of this crisis? And and that's a very broad, you know, large question. Um, but let's focus it in more so on you know the workplace and you invest in enterprise businesses, right? And so you, you have a, 
particular perspective on this. You know, some of the things that I'm I'm thinking about are, you know, what do we hope will not be temporary, but rather actual permanent paradigm shifts in the enterprise? What are the elements that you're seeing, you know, are you believing out of practices that, that you really hope, you know, stick in the workplace environment? Um, yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so, yeah, so I think what I what I what I hope will stay is that that people can be um, people can be productive without having to rigidly adhere to the typical corporate structure. This is such a fun conversation. I'm, I'm so glad you made the time. Um, you know, it really, I do, I do a lot of these conversations and I have to say, you know, this conversation really pushed my thinking, you know, certainly on diversity and inclusion, um, on building communities in, in, in tech. I'm so excited to watch you know, Operator Collective. I'm sure this is the first of many funds um, and, and continue to see the impact. So thanks again. Thank, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciated having you on. Um, Romain, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's awesome what you're doing um, and super appreciate you having me on. And we didn't have time to talk about another topic that I want to talk about one of these days is why former lawyers actually make the best founders. <laughs> yes. We will definitely have a follow-up episode on that on legal tech. Absolutely. <laughs> After we finished the official podcast, Malin and I ended up having another one and a half hour conversation that just happened to be recorded. Neither one of us was sure we wanted to share it as we're both pretty private people, but given all that's going on in the world, we decided to share it. The rest of the dialogue over the next 40 minutes or so is an excerpt from our offline conversation. We talked very candidly and openly about the Asian American experience, personal experiences with racism, why awareness is so important in diversity, and how expansive the definition of diversity really is. We kicked off the top of the conversation with the double standard that women face in the tech industry. I so admire Malin for her thoughtfulness and perspective, and, and I'm really excited to share the after hours portion of the conversation with everyone. And then, and then the other thing on top of that too is, again, I think it's social conditioning because we're so taught to be perfect and just even the way, and believe me, we try to raise our, we have a boy and a girl, and even though you try, you still, you know, like, you, you try, but there's just differences, right? And and so, but but the thing is, is like women are taught, right, to speak in a certain way, right, to to not disturb, right, and and so, um, and also, frankly, that also results in like being perfect and all this stuff. And so, we care about what people think, whereas, like, I it, in some ways, I wish that we were more like some of these guys who are like, I don't give a shit. Right? Well, they think I'm an idiot. I don't give a shit. But the thing is, is someone thinking some guy is an idiot, and you can say I don't give a shit because it doesn't affect them as much as like if someone thinks we're an idiot, like we can't get, we can't actually accomplish what that person, that other person could do, even though they're an idiot. You know what I mean? So it's like there's these social things that have conditioned us to care about what people think, want people to like us. But the fact is, if people didn't like us and people didn't think we're smart, we actually can't get. You know, we can't accomplish what we couldn't that that maybe someone else could have who is not someone who looks like us. So this is anyway, this is what we didn't quite get into this. And this, but all of these things is actually why I actually started Operator Collective, which is to really deconstruct these things to say, look, women are taught to be perfect. So we're going to make this easy for them to be perfect here is like you can have any amount of time that you want to spend right on this zero if you need to, if you're busy or, you know, 
10 hours a week or whatever it is. So it's okay to not be perfect here. Is, is two, we're gonna make it super easy to um, you know collaborate. We're gonna make this accessible. We're gonna schedule things. And so, so there's a lot of things. And then at the same time too, is the reason that we're not investing in just female founders in the enterprise, beyond the fact that there's so few of them, is that we're going to naturally infuse these diverse networks into these, um, into these, uh, into these startups early because I know as hard as it is for you to get, um, you know, people from diverse backgrounds on your podcast, it's really hard for founders to hire women and people of color. It's yeah. not that they're not trying, but that cold LinkedIn that you sent, right, yeah. is is like why it's like me like if I was a busy operator, I got I was yeah. you know juggling two small kids. It's like I get a random ping from a random startup founder who says, "Really, this is a really great company. You should look at me." I have no time to look at whether or not this is going to be one of the ninety five percent of the startups that fail. I don't know you. You don't look oh. like me. You're twenty years old, right? And so why would I go work for you? So one of the ulterior motives here too is by making it natural to intersect and and to interact and get to know these people, we can say to the former me, to say like, no, this is a really great company Romine just started. You should look at this. We vetted every company in the space. And this, this is the one that we're gonna invest in. And by the way, if you decide to join, you're not on your own. You have this whole community around you that's supporting you. And so, so I have all kinds of ulterior motives as to why, you know, why I put together this fund of like literally how we're going to change the face of venture from the ground up. It's not just about making money for these women and people of color who have invested. It's about demystifying, making it more accessible, um, de-risking it, making it more comfortable. And at the end of the day, I think that we do infuse our more natural networks of people who are, um, who are not part of the dominant homogenous typical group, which expands the talent pool. And then second, um, what we're seeing is that some of these operators too are saying, hey, I could start a company too, because now I know what it takes. And now I know people who could be co-founders. Now I know what the challenges are. Now I know other people who would be funding it. And so this is why I spend all this time, you know, putting together, you know, Operator Collective and, you know, and working day and night, as well as why my partners do and why everyone who is a part of this, um, you know, puts all this extra effort into something that, you know, that is a lot of time. Yeah, the, the accessibility and risk part is so, I think, so critical and important to understand. So from an operator perspective, like I, I was angel, I've, I've been angel investing um, and why I stopped and I became a, a very small kind of check, a very small LP in, in a couple of different funds was exactly that same piece. Uh, I was getting to a point where I was saying, okay, you know, maybe in ed tech where I've had a focus or I've looked at a bunch of companies. I just haven't done the due diligence of looking at this type of company 30 different ways and gone through the idea maze and figured out everything that could go wrong with it, right? Like you just don't have the data points because you're, you have a day job. Yeah. Right? And you're, you're and a night job, right? Totally. Yeah. And in fact is, is it's, it is, it's harder, right? Um, it's, it's harder because we have to be so careful. And also maybe it's the fact that I'm a former lawyer. I don't know, <laughs> but, but, but you, but, but I think because women, you know, and the non-dominant group, right, we're so conditioned to have everything that we've said be picked apart or, yeah. or challenged or, and, and so we're so trained, again, to be perfect, to not say anything that's, um, and that, that pisses me off in some ways because look at what's happening with the world today, right? You woke up this morning yeah. with what's happening in Minnesota. I'm so angry. Um, and I, 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 
it's like, what, what can I do? But, but on the other hand, it's like, I don't know. I don't have a great answer, but, but it's, but it's that I think that we're so trained and conditioned and to, to be perfect and have everything that we're doing analyzed and picked at, right. Yeah. Or, or that we are trying to be very careful and very deliberate. And as a result of that, um, it's hard to have these candid conversations publicly. Now there's some people who I totally adore who are willing to do stuff like this. Like, I mean, like Arlen Hamilton, gosh, I wish I could be like her. <laughs> right. um, well, that's that's why I asked Melon because it's interesting. Like Arlen's a really good example. She's she's building a brand kind of on that. I'm a you know black woman, you know a non-straight black woman. The world is so messed up. I'm going to be kind of the arbiter of and and I give her a ton of credit, right? And it's it's super important to have a communication kind of like vehicle that she's become, right? For this exact type of for for these exact type of problems. Um, I always I always think it's interesting, like. For, for us, right? So if you say kind of different backgrounds, right? Still minorities, women, people of color, there's their own challenges, but Asian, right? Yeah. Well, and, and it is, you know, and, and, and part of it is our upbringing too, right? Is that, yeah. I don't right. know about you, but I was always taught, um, you know, you're taught to, I mean, we're both from Asian backgrounds, right? We're, yeah, we're taught to follow rules, right? We're taught to, yeah, we're, yeah, we're taught to follow rules. Um, you followed them really well. You ended up at Harvard Law. I only went to Berkeley. Um, no, I love Berkeley. Um, the, uh, but, but, I'm the one that needs to follow in Europe. No. Um, but, but we're taught to follow rules, right? And so, and then the other thing that we're taught, I don't know if you were taught this too, is we were always taught that we were outsiders, right? And everything that happened when we were younger, right, is that we were outsiders. Like my, my parents used to say, like, you can't, you can't trust Westerners, right? And, and they're always going to look at you differently. Um, there was a number of reasons is, you know, one, they were always going to look at you differently, which is true. Cause I mean, I can share some experiences, which I'm, you, you may have had, you're younger than me. Maybe you haven't had, um, quite the same ones. Um, cause, uh, but, but the, um, you know, they would, there were things, there were things that were just like, I used to dismiss them as just being, oh gosh, they're, they're, they don't know any of this stuff. Cause they would say, Hey, you can't trust them because they'll say things like, Ramin, let's go have lunch and like never follow up or like, um, Hey, how are you? But not actually stop to hear how you are. And so that was puzzling to them. So for a long time, I kind of dismissed them as like, Hey, you just don't even know those are just social norms. But I realized that they were actually very correct, which is that people do view you differently. Right. And that you're never actually going to be fully fully the American that you feel like you are inside because I was born in this country. And the fact is when I was growing up and I never even told anyone, actually I didn't even tell anyone until Layla and I actually were having a conversation about race in our upbringings is when, when, when I grew up and I was walking to, you know, my public school in San Jose, like, you know, I had been called chinks, right? Chink. They would, they would, they would, they would like pull their eyes up and make them all slanty. And then like, you know, they put big smiles on their face and then call me names. I was spit on, right. And called names. Never, ever, ever said a word to anyone. Right. Um, I was embarrassed that it happened to me. I would never have told the teacher. I would have never told my parents. Right. And what you realize is, you know, I wasn't the only one this was happening to. Um, but you put that away. And in fact, I don't even think I even thought about that until what's been happening recently with, with all the, the growing racism. It makes me, you know, just, it, it, it's just, um, it just makes me um, sort of sick about what's going on. You're totally right. There's still two very seminal experiences that burn in the back of my mind. So one was during 9-11, right? Um, and I remember uh, people basically telling me to like, you know, go back to my own country, right? Yeah. I remember that. And then I remember um, 
uh, when the when the Boston Marathon bombings happened. Uh, oh, so, sorry, not not the Boston Marathon. But I was in law school at that time when Trump got elected. I remember I was flying home from Boston to Atlanta, and someone in the airport told me the same thing. You know, go back to your country. Like, you know, Trump's been elected. We're gonna get rid of people like you. And it was the most bizarre. I, like, I think I just gotten off the phone with like a law firm partner. I think it was like recruiting season. I was wearing a Harvard sweatshirt. It, it was like the most bizarre feeling on one hand to be saying you're literally talking to like the top lawyers in the world, right? Like I was going to go work at Cravath. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't get any more white shoe than Cravath. (laughs) Right, exactly, right? And then on the other hand, you have this just like white person yelling at you to go back to your own. It it was the most like bizarre experience, um, you know, mentally, mentally I feel like I've ever had, right? But I, I agree with that, which is, you know, there, there are these elements or aspects, which is like, I, I grew up here, I was born here, I feel fully entitled to this country and fully entitled to, you know, being as, as much of an American as anybody else. I don't have an accent, I, right, any of those things. But you do realize that that piece, which is like, you, you are still continually viewed as, as something different, right? Um, yeah. So that is, uh, it's, it's interesting. And it, it always feels like for, for folks like us as well, it, it feels like it's a different it feels like in some senses it's a, it's a great position to be in because we actually do have networks we have kind of pull that we can you know influence things etc and then sometimes it feels like you know an odd dynamic also because like on on you know the issue that is going on this morning right like it was it's completely ridiculous that the cnn you know the african-american cnn reporter got arrested right or just some of the ridiculous things that are going on um but i do i do double think and i say you know am i Am I in a position? I'm in a position where I should say something, and I do, right, very actively. But do I understand? Do I truly understand the experience? And it's it's kind of that odd gap of like not being a white male in America, but not being like a, a true underrepresented. Yeah. White male I, I, yes. Hispanic, Native American, etc. Right. Yeah. So it's uh, it's 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 interesting. It, I've been thinking about it a lot more, more lately. Of, of just um, and maybe it's because I'm getting a little bit older and out of like schooling environments, but just. Yeah, but 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 what a contrast with you getting off the phone and what you're talking about, and then suddenly someone yelling at you, right? right? And (laughs) and this happened to me last year when um, when I was on a vacation. Actually, I was like waiting to cross the street, and um, and this, I I guess I was standing in the way of this woman who was like this. Lululemon wearing yoga mat carrying woman who you know you would think you know has is probably trying to meditate and be enlightened she just shoved me out of the way and said stupid tourist stupid no stupid Asian tourist is what she said and I I then I was actually so like shocked by it I I I I actually couldn't say anything right and and I'm I'm not usually at a loss for words yeah Right. It's like, and then afterwards you're like, I should have said this. I should have said that. Right. But you're like, it's such a like slap in the face. That's so unexpected because, you know, you and I go through this world thinking, oh, this is our country. This is us. And then, but people don't view us that way. And so, you know, like a lot of things, I don't, I don't have the answer, but I, 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 maybe, maybe, and, and, and it is, we are sort of in between, Right. Because we're not, we are so privileged in so many ways, um, but really not, not, not totally viewing this as, as our, you know, clearly we're not viewed by 
by people as um, by a lot of people as you know truly belonging here. And perhaps also part of it is it's also talking about it more. You know, talking about it is, you know, obviously awareness is always the first step, right? It's not the answer. But I don't know that, like, did you tell your parents? Did you tell your friends, right? Did you tell anyone about that? I didn't, right? And it was the same kind of logic that you you were kind of spinning, uh, you were spinning through, which was, I definitely, I didn't tell my parents because that's, uh, I mean, obviously when I was, when I was a kid and in seventh grade, I'd come home and, you know, was crying and said that, et cetera. And you can see, you could see like the hurt in their eyes, right? And so yeah. for me, it was like, look, I'm like 24, whatever, second year in law school. Yeah, you can't tell them that. Like you can't, like, it, yeah, you can't hurt your parents, right? <laughs> they would be so right? sad. Exactly. So to me, it's like, it's just not worth, like, what are we going to do? We're going to sit down and have a talk about like this, like philosophical, like I, I got it, right? Like, yeah, well, yeah, what are you going to do to chase down that? No, I, I know, right? And so you, so... And maybe part of our upbringing too is we don't want to disturb the apple cart. We don't want to make our parents upset. <laughs> totally. No, I think that's right. It, in fact, I've, I've had this conversation just like, I mean, not about race or anything, just completely differently with my parents, which has kind of been this, this evolution of mindset for them, which has been go to law school or go to like, right, go to something that's a safe, Oh my God, totally, right? Don't go start your own thing, right? <laughs> go get a big job with a big company. Fair, right, exactly, right? And I've actually had to, like, over the last couple of years, especially as I was leaving McKinsey, like, kind of retrain my parents' thinking to be like, guys, you guys worked super hard to establish the foundation. Like, now it's the time for people in my, in, well, people in our generation, my siblings and I, to take all that risk, right? Or to leverage the fact that you've created the safety net and you've sent us to great schools and we have great brands and all that stuff to go out and start something and really swing for the fences, right? As opposed to kind of just sitting kind of like in that pathway and collecting, you know, stable paycheck. So it's a retraining of mindset, right? And that's obviously like a significantly less serious issue than, you know, race and so on and so forth. But on that, it's it's been interesting just to see the dynamic of like retraining their perspective there. I, I don't even bother on the other piece because it's like, I know just even bringing up that experience would be hurtful, right? Or so, yeah. and, and I I know how to rationalize it, or you know, so on and so forth. But it's a it's it's very the immigrant mindset is really interesting. I've been reading a lot about this lately, which is just like how the third generation squanders everything. <laughs> oh God, I know I'm very worried with my my kids. We try very hard to. Exactly right. I mean, you guys are experiencing it. Like we, we don't have we don't have kids just yet. Um, but you know when we do in a couple of years. Uh, like my wife and I have been talking about it a lot where we're like, look, we, we come from priv- objectively privileged backgrounds and we have our own pedigree where, you know, we'll create privilege. We have to make sure the third generation is like not super Americanized and throws this all away because there, there are a lot of elements of just like Asian upbringing that you say, okay, you have to retool, but there's a lot of elements of Asian culture that I think allow, you know, you're going to see this just like massive rise of Asian and Indian people over the next 30 years in this country, because we actually do take families as like building blocks. Yeah. Right? I'm at a, I'm at a, different position than when my dad came with nothing at 15, you know, to college in America, right? So now I have a different obligation, but I also have a very different starting point, right? So there's there's elements like, so we've been kind of joking about it and talking about it that, you know, like we, if there's one thing we do right, you know, in, in raising kids, it's like absolutely like continuing that kind of like hunger immigrant mentality with the right, um, the right tweaks around it, right? Like the right risk calculus, et cetera. But yeah. like keeping that kind of core foundational piece because it's it's like like we work our butts off and work like crazy because we're just like mentally trained to do that. Right. There's like no other there's no other option. But if you if you grow up in a kind of a world of privilege and you don't I think have the proactivity to do that, um, unlike our parents, which I don't think it was proactive, it was just so their nature. Um, you know, you you create a, a third generation that's 
you know, on, on the best side spoiled, on the worst side kind of squanders it away. Yeah, no, it's good that you, so I grew up with a different background than you. We did not have a lot of money growing up. I had, you know, free lunch growing up and a um, uh, lot of lot of mom and pop businesses that might, you know, worked in the Chinese restaurant, worked in a, worked in a liquor store, um, all these things, which, which taught me a lot of hard work, but, you know, had, had loans. Uh, but it, but it's, uh, it makes me feel better that you grew up without all the debt and you still are working this hard. There's hope for my kids. <laughs> well, and and it's, it's so interesting now. And I mean, like people, there's so many people in my generation I see that like, you know, grew up in similar backgrounds, and we we didn't grow up like crazy, right? Yeah, we grew up like well, right? Yeah, um, and are kind of just like settled and content now. And it's like, man, that's such a waste. Yeah. Right? Like, your parents busted their butts to put you in this kind of position. Like, how are you? Don't like, don't go kill yourself. But how are you not taking that? You know, that foundational element, which is really like a whole generation's hard work to put you in this position, and doing something good out of it but that's, that's yeah a different topic i know i mean but but your, your point about like okay this is we're in a position you know you didn't have debt it's right you could take a risk and move, leave your huge fat paying job at mckinsey and cravath right yep. um yep. so one of the i mean really it does come back to this is what i mean about 20 years of of a lot of experiences led to the forming of operator collective which is i wanted people to not have to say it's all or nothing which is i either leave this and then i go join a risky startup where i don't know anything about it because what are the chances that someone has the ability to then leave that and their mortgage right when they have a mortgage and they have kids and um, and all these expenses and a lot of us are supporting extended members of our family as well right and so how can we expose them to it make it accessible to them now so it's not just all or nothing right it's like hey I could do this this isn't as risky as I perceive it to be there we've we've um, you know, we know about this. This looks like it's actually a, a, a good opportunity. So, like I said, lots and lots of ulterior motives that are tied into how do we shift it and make it more comfortable so that the forces that are keeping us out um, are no longer keeping us out because... That's really... That, and that's the, that's the way to do it because I... So, um, and, you know, I'm sure you know Harry very well, especially because of Jason, but Harry and I, Harry Stebbings and I, we've become friends and I, I put a very small check into his... No, I love this. I love his fund. We just talked... I just actually talked to him last week. I love Harry. Oh, really? Harry's so yeah, great. Yeah. I'm glad that you guys are friends. He's, he's, yeah, yeah, he's we'll awesome. I was telling him, I was, I was saying the same thing. I was saying, you know, being an operator and, and doing kind of angel investing that are on the side very quickly, especially if you're passionate about it and interested in learning about business models and so on and so forth, it can become a full-time job. But it can become a full-time job where you kind of constantly have this nagging feeling where you're not really doing a great job at your full-time job, right? Because you're yeah. not looking at enough yeah, totally. you're not yeah. doing it the right way, et cetera, right? Uh, but this, is, this gives such great exposure it gives a good talking point where at, le at the very least I can get his update, you know, his updates coming on Monday and I can say, okay, great. You know, let me look at the 20 things that you've invested in or the five deals you've done and why did you skip on this? And, and it, it, it's a different bridge of conversation and I can feel comfortable saying, okay, this is going to, this is part of a, you know, five, $6 million fund that's going to invest in 40 companies. So it's not an all or nothing. Fund, that's exactly right? why. But yeah. Right. It's that's not an all or nothing, but I'm so motivated actually say hey harry even though i'm such a small check relatively let me help right help absolutely put me to work tell me how you need me and the thing is is exactly. the, the way that we use them is not like hey romine go tell us what you think about this company what we go to is romine this is the problem that they're focused on solving you are an expert in workforce management 
can you look at this and have your team look at this and say, give us feedback, give them feedback, and would you buy this? And so that's that's why this works. A hundred percent. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I no, I, I completely, I completely buy the thesis. Um, and and I, yeah, I. I <laughs> and then the other thing I didn't want is this, this also happened and this we'll have to decide whether I let you publish this part. Um, um, probably it's okay. It's, it's, it's one, first of all, we're, you know, 90% women, 40% people of color. Everyone assumes that we're only investing in female founders. Like we've never yeah, said, so yeah. That's the really interesting part, right? So, so uh, is what I was really interested in is I was like, you know, the, the, you know, yes, you can take the approach also saying like, let me just target and go after female founders, so on and so forth. But where I think the impact really comes is in this operator collective type model where you kind of flip the funnel on its head, right? And you say, okay, let's put a bunch of diversity in the decision makers, right? And then go fund the best stuff, right? Go, like, fund, go the fund the best, best stuff. stuff. And then you, one, you pick the leaders who are going to be the next Eric Yuan, right? And Zoom. Yep. And then, and then you naturally, because I know how hard it is, just like when you were trying to get women to go on your podcast, right. it's like, then when they have a position, our networks are naturally more diverse. You de-risk, de you know, de-risk yep. it. And so, um, so that's how we want to do it. But then what has happened and it's not been intentional, 50% of our portfolio is a, of our enterprise portfolio is actually founded and run by female CEOs. Um, which is interesting because I actually didn't expect that we would do that. Um, it actually happened a little bit more organically. That's interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have expected that. I, I would have expected that if that was the case, it's because it was a very proactive push. And then the question would have been, you know, is are they suboptimized deals? Right? And, and yeah, and they're absolutely a lot. Like every single one. And we actually didn't. I didn't even realize this. I mean, I knew we had a fair number of women, but I actually just went and out and counted it like a couple of weeks ago. I was like, we're actually fifty percent. Look, it may not always be fifty percent, right? So I'm not saying yeah, it always no, will be, no. but it actually happens to be fifty percent female founders. And then our our companies themselves do tend to be more diverse, right? There's first, yeah. you know, in terms of gender. Ethnic, you know, racial diversity, I think, still needs a lot of work across the board. Um, and um, but anyway, that's why. And the, the other thing I was going to say is, one, you know, because this, we invest in the enterprise and founders from all backgrounds. Everyone assumes we're doing female founders, consumer. Like D to C companies. D to C. And so it totally, totally. Um, you know, look, I'm glad people are doing this, you know, food delivery, childcare, all this stuff, because I, I use all that stuff. It doesn't, it's not what we invested. And then second, the reason I wanted to do this because I wanted to have busy operators to be able to invest and make money. Um, but they have to make money because just having people who don't have a lot of disposable income to put in money and then lose it, it doesn't work. And so what I actually heard from some of the women who actually had invested, it's like why they like this model was that what happened was when this horror story I heard was that like they're like, we should be investing. So they pulled together a bunch of their money and they didn't have time to vet it and they invested in the stuff that they were using. Right. So all D to C and D to C, right, is a very specific type. Right. You have to do, you know, the big bets because one's going to be a Facebook. Right. And the other one's going to fail miserably. So mm -hmm. you can afford to overpay, yeah, but you can't do it unless you kind of play the numbers. Right. We like boring, predictable enterprise. And so what happened is they all put their money in and they all lost it all. And I was like, OK, I do not want people to invest for the sake of investing. I want people to invest for the sake of one, you know, getting engaged and learning the process, but two, making money. Right, and then three, bringing their talent and expertise into the venture world. There's, there's no question about it. Yeah, that, that's and and that's often it's it's interesting. Actually, you took it kind of to that layer because what I often see, especially 
you know, being in Atlanta, like a lot of the old money in Atlanta is made in like real estate, professional services, et cetera, right? It's not made in tech. And so you see an angel community that's representative of that, right? And so if you're going and you're raising, you know, now there's been founders that have sold, you know, their companies for quite a bit and there's like an emerging scene. But, you know, I'd say as recently as four or five years ago, you'd, you'd go, you'd be pitching to, you know, these like law firm partners or big real estate developers, et cetera, because they're the ones that had money. You don't really feel bad if they lose a check or whatever. It doesn't really make a meaningful difference in their life. But if you have operators, oh right, god, yeah, yeah, or whatever it is, it's like this is hard-earned money that you're just you're 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 getting kind of carried away, or you're putting the excitement behind it, but you're not betting it like at, at the rigor of what you should as an institutional VC. And so the probability that you lose it is just so high. And then the worst part about that is, you know, maybe not all those people because maybe they've gotten involved with Operator Collective, but you see people like that that then have a jarring experience and basically. I'm done. I'm not going to invest yeah. in startups. They write off the whole thing and it, it becomes so black or white. And you say, man, what a missed opportunity. Yeah. Pulling in all, you know, but all the fact money. is they should stop because if they continue to do what they're doing, they're right. just going to lose it. And most it goes back to the gender pay equity, racial equity gap, which is we don't have money to just sprinkle around to say, have I invested in that company? I don't really think I'm very active if I had. And so th this is what, yeah, um, you know, all all sorts of ulterior motives um of, are, are tied into how are we gonna how are we gonna change this um it's anyways this is this is what's fun this is why you know we work a million hours you know you know you know what it is like any any startup and anything that you're doing i'm sure on this podcast right you spend you know way too many time way too many hours i know how hard harry has worked i've known harry for a long time um harry's harry works harder than anyone i know right um really hard um and so but it's 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 great and it, to see and these are the kinds of things they take they take time right like i i don't have anywhere near the audience of what harry does it's it's in like the tens of thousands um but it's i mean i remember the first episode i did was and it was actually with someone super high profile billionaire founder of boston beer i got 57 listens to it right so these are not things that are like made overnight right? yeah these yeah things that take years and years of happening and i, and I have to say mal and honestly now is like when I'm seeing the report, I'm seeing some reaping of the benefit, right? Yeah. Like I just wrote a piece for TechCrunch. I'll, I'll send it to you actually. Yeah, yeah, let me see it. Um, what did you, what was it about? It was about, so I, I took kind of issue with the paradigm, the, like the famous Ben Horowitz paradigm of wartime CEO. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the, the article was titled The Rise of the Human-Centric CEO. And so the thesis was basically, you know, I think this idea of, a, you know, having a binary paradigm is wrong, but B, I actually think it's problematic, right? Like at a, at a micro level, I think it's very problematic because companies have their own cultures. And in that piece, you know, he, he writes things like, you know, a wartime CEO should, you know, cuss all the time and be loud and, and these things that just like culturally a lot of, especially like women-led, minority-led. Well, the thing is, is it's not that we don't want to do that. If we did that, it doesn't come across. It doesn't come across. It, that's a, in a way that's effective. It's like, it's like that Pantene commercial that's like, yeah, exactly, right? It's like that Pantene commercial that's like, if you're a woman, if you're a man and you're like talking, you're like aggressive yeah. and assertive and you're a woman, you're a bitch, right? Like yeah. it just, it doesn't come across, right? So that was that was one piece at the micro level. And then at the macro level, I was like, you know, just like, like wartime itself, if you think of like the lingua, if you think of the, like the core language behind it, it implies like blood, destruction, death. Like it's so, it's got this machismo and bravado to it, which I think is like 
you know, at best, again, displays not worse, it just like reinforces a homogenous tech community. So, so anyways, I, I wrote that piece, um, because it's the- Yeah, send it to me, I want to read that. Uh, yeah, so I'll definitely send it to you. But it, it's, it's kind of like, it's take, it takes three, four years to write, to start seeing like, start seeing deal flow or start writing article, right? Things like, it, it takes, it takes time. So, uh, but no, it's a, it's a labor of love. And I, I think you, um, it's, you know, people have to do it, hopefully push the world forward. And, and you know, selfishly, it's, it's super interesting to do. It's super that. interesting. And the other thing is, is I love, that's why I love featuring the people who are not the people who are already in the spotlight. So for instance, we just did an operator spotlight on one of our LPs. Her name's Rothy Murthy. I don't know if you've heard okay. of her before. Okay. Um, see, no one's heard of her. Mm-hmm. She's phenomenal. She's the no. CTO. She was the CTO of The Gap and she's the CTO okay. of Verizon Media. She's okay. incredible. No one's ever heard of her because she's um, immigrant, right? Um, mom um, and not someone who's out there chest beating, cussing and saying, look at me in the spotlight with their PR people calling you. Right, saying, yeah. "Hey, put me on your podcast because you know what? She's trying to juggle everything, and frankly, I think she has her priorities straight. But, but um, she's a very balanced, peaceful person. But, but so that's one of the things. Again, one of my ulterior motives is like I want to, I want to feature those people, right? So that people know that you can be successful without having to be one of those chest pounding, cussing, you know, obnoxious yeah. look at me type of people. The people who are the Eric Yuans of the world. I mean, obviously, Eric does not need any help right now from me in terms of his visibility, but I've known him for a very long time, right? And so can you feature the leaders that are like that who aren't in the spotlight so that people know that you can be successful without being like that? Like, No, I, I get it. I right. Get it. And, and most, it's been women and people of color that have always said, hey, can I and comms run it, can I take a personal listen to it, et cetera. It's never been white males. It just hasn't, right? And so I so I, I get it. I get that the inertia actually, um, and I like the way you framed it because I haven't thought about it that far down, but I, I get that actually now when you think about all these layers beyond just being busy, et cetera, but thinking about, hey, I want to re-listen to it, so on and so forth, it can sound like a lot more work. Whereas for most, you know, for especially kind of most, even like super high profile white males, it's been cool, I'll get on this thing for 45 minutes, like, you know, it's, it's not a big investment of time, yeah. right? Um, but it can be a big investment of time if you have to re-listen to it and go back and forth. Hey, can we get this out? So on and so forth. Yeah. It suddenly becomes a more project. It, and, right? and the reason is the women aren't also wrong and the people of color aren't wrong. Right. So that's... No, I, I, I get I totally get it. Uh, and I'm, hope, I'm hoping with more, you know, it's it's a network effect like anything else. Like one, one of the things I saw was actually once I had, I had your husband on uh, a couple of years ago um, and I keep her boy and kind of a good stretch of like four or five, you know, like you know, objectively great names in venture. And then I saw the, the tides, you know, very quickly, you know, move, right? So it's the same thing. I've been thinking about this a lot, which is if I can hit a critical threshold with women, yeah. people, et cetera, it'll be the same kind of flywheel effect. Um, and, and candidly, I've actually, uh, I've, I've stopped having, I don't really have VCs on the show. Uh, anymore, unless it's someone that I think has either started a really interesting type of fund or just has a very interesting differentiated thesis, because um, it all kind of sounds the same, right? And part of that might have been that I had you know so many white male VCs, right? But um, it, it really I think getting folks that have more of the founder DNA or the operator DNA, whether it's building a fund or building you know an actual company, it just gives a very different perspective. So I'm I'm very focused on how can I get how can I kind of crack that floodgate with 
in a way. So I have a suggestion so, um, on that. Yeah. So so the first yeah. year when um, you know I was I was still running the public company and just helping Jason in the background. So when Jason invited everyone, it was ninety five percent male speakers. It was great people, right? Stuart Butterfield and David Sachs and sure. and Al- Aaron Levy yeah. and um, and Layla, right? As the only woman who was in um, enterprise SaaS at the time. Uh, I'm slightly overstating that. But so then the next year he was like horrified. So he's like, okay, we got to do better. We need to have more women. And so that's when also it's like if you only look at the CEO founders, and this is why we did this with the fund, then you're only going to end up with the same homogenous group you've had before. So you had then like the Claire Hughes Johnsons, who's amazing, right? She's like the most incredible. Lexi yeah. Reese, people like that. I and wrote a, I wrote a work. I wrote a working guide to Ramin, literally modeled off of uh, off of her piece. She's right? you're, she's you're so working. great. Yeah. She's yeah. so great. Um, and so, but the thing is, is if you just focus on the CEOs, you would only have the Collison brothers, right? But like you would miss out on the, the Claire's of the world. I mean, Claire's doing great, but, but you know what I mean? Back then. And, but, but what happened was when Jason did it the second year, he's like, okay, we need to have more women. Then he, then you ended up saying, okay, well, and I have all these phenomenal people that might've been overlooked before, but he always still ended up with like 25%. And then he's like, okay, this isn't good enough. And the next year he ended up at like 30%. It wasn't, and it wasn't until a couple of years ago when he just said, we're going to do 50, at least 50%. And so I would say, actually, you have to, like setting number goals is very helpful because if it's just, hey, I just got to get more women or people yeah. of color, um, yeah. it, it's hard. It, it's, it's just, a, there's just a little bit difference to say, you know what? My goal is actually going to be 50%. That's what the world is. This is what I'm going to strive yeah. for. So, um, and I'll help you. <laughs> I'll help you. Yeah. No, I, I, I so appreciate it. And I, and I, I, I like the... Um... The thinking is very helpful also because clearly, you know, not only have you thought about it a lot in Operator Collective, but you guys have thought about it, you know, over the years. And for me, many of this is like, it's like that first time experimentation, right? So, so getting that kind of guidance or perspective is actually, it's very helpful also. And then the one other thing before we go is like, what was interesting is um, even though like when I was raising money with the funds and the institutions and things like that, they were, you know, they, it took them a little while to get it. Most of the women um, and men actually, but the women who signed up for the fund, signed up after a half hour conversation because they're like, like, like two minutes into it, they'd be like, I completely get what you're saying. And they, and they completely at a deep level understood why this model actually would solve all of these things that we've just spent an hour talking about, um, or, or, or make a real difference toward doing so. And so it was literally like within half hour. And again, a lot of women weren't investing. So that's, that's highly unusual. And also we made it safe, right? Um, it might've been different. Like if you had tried to raise this fund, Romine, maybe not the same result, right? Yeah. Because I was one of them. And so it, it was yeah. like, I could speak to them too. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. but it was fascinating that like literally, like sometimes it was 30 seconds in, they're like, I got it. Like totally, I'm in. Well, that's why I'd ask the question like in, in the podcast early on, right? I was saying, okay, you know, you're oversubscribed and, and you kind of put the chronology to it that, hey, you know, early on it wasn't. But my kind of, and I, I don't know the, I know the composition, at least, you know, from what's on the site, et cetera, but obviously not in terms of like relatively who put in how much in a $50 million fund. But one of the things I was thinking is just of these people that you went to, like I would have had to imagine, that was parallel in my experience, I would have just had to imagine that you had this conversation, right? And people hear it and they say, I, I get it. Like, I, I totally get it, right? And this is the amount I want to commit or, you know, after flushing it out, whatever yeah. it is, but at least the core thesis, I totally get it. Yeah. And the other thing is, is I guess to clarify what I said earlier, it wasn't like everyone was just throwing money at me um, uh, right from the beginning. But I have to say the people that I spoke because no one had no one knew what I was doing, but 
But I would say the success rate for every, um, and I started with the women, right, and the people of color, is I would say virtually every woman operator I spoke to said yes. And so, yes, that part was easy, but that didn't get me to a $50 million fund, right? Because the fact that the range at the bottom end of the sliding scale was $10,000, right, and higher than that. And so it was easy, quote unquote, um, you know, it was relatively easy to, to raise from the operator LPs because this was so different and they knew immediately what, what we were, what were we trying to do. And also I was obsessive about like, how do you make this easy for them to participate without having to worry about disappointing everyone? But the other piece, you know, hundreds of conversations. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. To get to the scale where... Yeah. To get to the scale. To get a university to put in, you know, millions and millions of dollars is not a half-hour conversation. Um. <laughs> not at all. But then again, I also could not have gotten the universities to put in that if we hadn't built it. So actually, the first place I started from day one was actually the operators, because without the operators, there's no operator collective fund. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to ask, actually, right? And, and it goes, I, I think, back to that concept of community was... Was the idea when the chronology of fundraising? Did you focus on you know getting let's say up to five million with uh, eighty operators or whatever it was, and then go pitch? Or how, yeah. did, how did you think about? The so so you always remember your first investor, right? So the first investor is this um, incredible. Um, revenue leader. Her name's Erica Schultz. She's the president of Confluent now, and she was the the CRO at New Relic, who grew them from basically turned them from an SMB business into an enterprise business. And I I remember it was October 2018, and we were at a conference, and I was sitting next to her, and I knew her superficially from Saster because we had invited her to speak, and I always was so impressed with her, but didn't know her very well. And I happened to be sitting next to her, um, and. I was like, Erica, and she says, yeah. I said, hey, I'm working on this idea. I'm like, would you be open to listening to it? And she said, yeah, totally. And so I pitched it to her, and she's like, oh, my God, I love it. I'm in. And because we're both revenue people, I'm like, okay, how much? And she said, I don't know, you know, whatever, whatever. It was real dollars. I'm like, that's great. Um, have you ever invested before? No, but I've been thinking about it. And so she was my first. And I, I always joke with her, like, Erica, if you had said, I'm not so into it, I might've gone on and done something else. <laughs> right. But she was like, she was someone who was such a leader and so such the kind of person that I wanted in this fund and said, and she was like immediately like, okay, tell me how I can help use my name, do whatever. And so, so, so I started with the operators and I knew I had enough operators. And then I started probably in January, started talking to getting intros, warm intros to some, um, institutional investors and, What's interesting is I got four intros um, over time. It took time. It wasn't like they signed up the way Erica signed up. Three of them ended up in the fund. Um, the fourth one is still sort of interested, but the timing kind of didn't work out. They say they're interested in the, the time, which is fine. But like, that's pretty crazy. And in fact, and I, I give a lot of credit though to Kellogg Foundation um, mm. because by February, they had, um, actually January, I had the meeting with them. And by the end of January, they had committed and it was actually earlier than I thought. And they're like, can we see your data room? I'm like, I don't have one yet. <laughs> and they're like, can we see your legal docs? I'm like, they're being drafted right now. Uh, and so, so that's what I mean about people who are willing to take a chance, which is not only did this fund not look like any other fund out there, I wasn't even ready for them. And they literally like held my hand through it to say, okay, here's what we need. And this is what we need to get it done. And I said, Great. Let me do that. And of course, I take feedback really well. And whatever we put together, like was like, like they'd never seen a data room like this before. It was like on steroids, right? 
And so, and so, so it, it went relatively smoothly, but there was a lot of stuff that went through. And I have to say that if Kellogg did not come in so early, I don't know that we would, could have gotten the rest of the universities and the foundations because oh. it's hard to be first, really hard to be first. Yeah. No, it, and it's those people, right, who are willing to say, and early on it was, it was Erica, it was the other women who I had lunch with, those women COOs who said, I'm in, like, use my name, right? Yep. Um, and, and actually, the other one that was super early was Bloomberg Beta, who was actually back in, okay. like, November. They're great, by the way, um, for anyone who's, who's raising, especially early stage. Anyway, so, but it's people like that who were, like, like, who were willing to do it. Otherwise, I would probably go back and, you know, be an intellectual property attorney again. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing, not that there's anything wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it at all. But um, no, Melon, it's, it's so inspiring what you're doing with Operator Collective. And I'm just, I'm so excited to look from afar and continue to support, you know, in any way I can and really hope that this conversation, um, you know, for, for folks that are listening is another step forward in, in increasing diversity and inclusion in our industry. It's such an important topic and, and I really thank you for your leadership on it. So thanks again. Really appreciated having you come on the show today.